Hello, my name is Kayla. And my name is Jackie, and this is season two of Living Two or More. A podcast where we interview people who are biracial and multiracial. Their stories are beautifully complex and unique. We were honored to receive them and so excited to share them with you. Thanks for listening and enjoy Living Two or More. In this episode, we have a conversation with Curtis Bullock. Curtis is very happy, though his life is in flux. After 16 years in education, he is ready for a career change, but leaping into the unknown of a creative artistic career feels both exciting and uncertain. He's nearly finished with a doctoral degree with research about working conditions and retention for people of color in predominantly white organizations, and he is very much looking forward to what may lie beyond. In this episode, we talk about education, art, and visibility. Enjoy the episode. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm sitting on my couch very comfortably. Uh, I've taken the kitchen stools from the island uh, and put them. I was having a real struggle for a second because at first I, I hadn't realized the, 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 the importance of having the backs of the chairs uh, sort of perpendicular, sorry, parallel to one another so that it would lift it over my head because I'm tall. Uh, and then I took a, uh, a, a a light duvet. It's not a heavy duvet. It's very comfortable in here. I've got ventilation on the sides, uh, out of the kitchen stools. It's it's working great. So. Oh, friends, I love you so much. You sound yeah. you sound really good. You really like, do. Of all the interviews we've done so far, you win you win for sound. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> for a second, I thought you were laying down, and I was like, "How?" Can Me this too. Be it looked like you were like laying down on the ground, like, uh-huh. <laughs> like tucked like, yourself what? into like something. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah, I listened to I listened to a lot of podcasts, or I also uh, yeah, I listened to enough podcasts that we got had to sort of transition to pandemic recording where people were like yeah so like i'm still able to make money because i do voiceovers and stuff but like i just kind of snuggle myself in my closet between the sweaters and stuff or like yeah sweat to death under a duvet on my bed like you know sort of slightly propped so oh my gosh i I took some advice it sounds great it looks great (laughs) do you you like your do you like your best like i don't know do you like your best like I'm in a badass sound studio in my house vibe. All right. <clears throat> hey, I'm everyone. My name is Curtis Bullock. I'm just taking a picture of you. Oh, I thought it was supposed to be. That sounded great. That's amazing. Do you like the posture of like, yeah, I'm in a badass Well, I thought, I thought you, Jackie, would mean, meant for him to speak too because <laughs> – um you could also do that mm-hmm. it sounded great it, it really so, did yeah well, well welcome everyone to the living two or more podcast <laughs> we could wow. do more of those we could we could do some takes oh it's so good i love it yeah thank you curtis for being here today and for being on living two or more um we like to first open with the same question for everyone, and that is, describe your experience of living two or more racial identities. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's been an interesting one for me. I, I My mom is white, uh, and my dad is black. Uh, I grew up in Maryland, primarily with my mom's white family. Um, my experience with that was great uh they were they were wonderful oh, they were they are uh you know wonderful wonderful people always felt super comfortable and welcomed and like completely a natural and 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 uh yeah completely natural part of of that family and everything um my dad's family is interesting they are uh i think their mode of communication is no news is good news uh but at the same time then for me uh as an adult, even relationship with him, sometimes I would feel, and I've told him, I feel a little bit sheepish sometimes if we haven't talked for a while and I only call him because I need something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is completely and totally comfortable with that. He's like, I'm your dad. That's what I do. I'm, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm supposed to be here for. And so he has no discomfort whatsoever around a relationship that is, uh, that is, more more like that more more based in like obvious fillable need uh that makes him really comfortable actually so um so it's been an interesting one i mean definitely uh 
not a lot of connection to my dad's family because of that communication style where there's not like much of a casual like you know hey uncle you know uncle tommy's on the phone like he just called for nothing <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know just just to talk and check in with everybody or whatever that kind of thing um and so it's a definitely a different like communication style between my two parents um and i think that that has sort of led me to a place of where where i fit with my relationship with my with my dad or with my dad's family and stuff being something where I definitely I definitely don't pine for like a Norman Rockwell-esque like Saturday evening post picture. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my one of my sisters really, really does. Uh, and it has been a really difficult thing for her because she she doesn't really seem to know how to recognize that like that is a painting. It is mm-hmm. highly idealized. Um, but there definitely have been times when I've I've kind of wanted like a, a, a more like closer natural family like that. Um, but I but then when I moved out here, I, I moved out here partly because I well, definitely primarily because I really wanted to move to Oregon because um, I grew up in Maryland. Um, but I also moved because I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm tired of waiting for even a realistic version of that like Saturday evening post picture. It's OK. Like these the people that I care about are fine. They're they're good people. But this is the way that it is, you know, that they are they've they've been that way for a long time and that doesn't sound like they're probably going to change um and thankfully not that they were harmful you know thankfully that they were great they were they were good people they are they are good people they're uh they're loving in the way that they are capable of it um but yeah i kind of had to recognize you know what i think it's time for me to do this thing that i really care about especially because just waiting for that kind of relationship to change doesn't really sound like a great uh, a great idea. So, um, so yeah. So I moved out here to Oregon, and uh, it's definitely been different. Uh, the experience of being more vis is definitely more visible here for sure. Uh, being um, half black, half white, uh, being biracial, um, because in 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 Oregon, if you accident like if you don't intentionally seek out people of color like you will very easily not see them and that could just be by accident like you just mm-hmm. were well in a bubble enough to not realize that it was happening <laughs> but if you if you want to intentionally create a to, to live a life where there are no people of color around you you can easily do it with very very little effort whatsoever um where in maryland that is just not possible you can't do it like you know you and, and it's it's also it's also different to Maryland um, in that like it's not just separated by class or by 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 your work or whatever. Where like oh yeah, geez, I didn't notice that all the people of color around me are in service positions. It's like no, there's just enough people of color that they are in lots of positions. You know that it's 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 you know there's definitely still lots of things to resolve. But in terms of in terms of seeing people of color in a variety of social positions, a variety of occupational positions, things like that. Um, you know, very common, very typical. Where here, uh, there's just so few people of color that like, um, and it, it definitely, yeah, it definitely makes me a little bit un- uncomfortable in my in my role as a, as a school principal where I'm like, well, you know, yeah, I'm really uncomfortable about the fact that, you know, our teaching staff looks one way and our custodial staff looks another way at the same time um you know the 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 last person we hired for that custodial staff was a lifelong friend of the second to last person that we hired so it was really meaningful to put those two people together um because when i look at their when i look at their resumes their experience they've they've every single time one of them would get a job and bring the other one along every single time. So it's a really, really special relationship. So I don't want to, I don't want to paint all of those kinds of situations with a broad brush, but, but definitely does make me think a little bit like, like what is the look of, of my school that, that I do have the final say on hiring for, for most of the positions that I hire for. Um, And so, you know, so, thinking about my experience from the East coast of, of just seeing people of color in a variety of positions in my school, in my life in general. And then thinking about the kids that, that are in the school where I'm the principal of like, like it, it, it hits me in a certain way to know that the 
three three of the maybe five Latino people we have at work are custodial. Um, but at the same time, like I said, there's a huge and really deep, meaningful relationship for two of those people on that staff. So, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, don't want to paint it all with a broad brush. But um, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's been interesting being here. That's for sure. Yeah, something that's coming up for me right now is like, because as you're talking about the fact that you see people of color around all the time in Maryland and here you don't, like it actually makes me wonder like if we would be having this conversation for this podcast if we lived in Maryland Um, and or like if the questions that the framing that we would have around um, talking about race in general or talking about like POC or BIPOC people would even be something that would be as I don't know highlighted or spotlit Mm -hmm. what do you think I think that's a great question I and I would say in many, in many circumstances, maybe not, or we'd have a different conversation. Um, like, so for me as a, as a teacher or as a, now as a, as a principal, uh, I came from Maryland from a school where <clears throat> on a staff of maybe a hundred ish people or so in total, easily, easily 15 other, other teachers of color but that's like that way more than that, way more than that, probably probably 15 black teachers then and then beyond that, like, you know, so the staff of 100 people being maybe probably at least 25 people of color in, in general, if we obviously lump a lot of people together. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, that that was a very unique place. And the, the principal there uh, was a fantastic person, uh, Marcy Leonard. She is uh definitely the person that i think of when i think about like why do i why did i want to even get to do the thing that i'm doing right now being a principal because being a principal is complicated mm-hmm. um, but uh but yeah when i look at what she built in that or what she which i wouldn't say she would never take credit like that mm-hmm. um looking at what she what what the what she facilitated there um was really really special um, and so, yeah, so for me as an educator there, as a teacher of color or a person of color there, I had tons of people around me all the time that I, I wouldn't probably have needed or this conversation there. Mm-hmm. Um, but being out here or just knowing that this podcast could potentially go out to like a lot of people in a, pla- a lot of places where that is not a thing, you know, that that is not available. Um, it's really special to be to be able to be a part of that. Yeah. Shout out to Mercy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you, when you moved here, did you find that you were facing like different, like not exactly problems, but different, you were coming across different situations that you had never experienced as a teacher in Maryland? And what was that like for you? Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a different uh, way of communicating here that is very different to Maryland. <laughs> um <laughs> So, yeah, there's a different way of communicating here to Maryland where, like, the the directness uh, is not very uh, welcome here <laughs> sometimes. So uh, the, the phrase, like, being clear is being kind, and sometimes being clear means you need to be pretty straight up with, like, what's not working or what needs to change or what, what do you want to see. Um, I think the, the the sort of especially in education the the long history of local control here uh, is very unique to me. I is completely unfamiliar to me from from what I'm familiar with with Maryland. So in in Oregon, in education, the very very tiny districts that we have, um, and that they are so close together. Where from Maryland, where everything's county by county, and it kind of makes a lot of sense. Like to say, oh well, like our central office is gonna make most of that decision and then the remaining you know pieces of it are still going to be at the building level so that that administrators or or teachers can still have their heart and their creativity and their passion so it's not a it's not a crushing bureaucracy that manages everything but there are some major foundational pieces that are laid and that are understood and that are directed and then you come in with your passion your creativity to um 
to carry the ball the rest of the way forward. Um, where here, this sort of grassroots style, local control style, where consensus is such a thing, um, it's definitely different for me. Uh, there are definitely times when I'm kind of like, uh, there are definitely times when I would I would be looking for a little bit more of that centralized direction and then bringing my creativity in as a professional or as a, as a creative person uh, or the other way to say, we have to have five meetings about this. <laughs> like, um, and everything's just, yeah, I, you know, everything can be very, very slow uh, because of that, like uh, the, the hesitance of moving away from a consensus model or a consensus uh, consensus style of leadership. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to say that my way or what I was used to is necessarily always necessarily better in any circumstance or certainly not always better. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's definitely different. People, people expect to have their voices heard, uh, which is, you know, a good thing. Uh, and at the same time, it can also be equally slow to a, a hulking bureaucracy sometimes, which is a little little tricky. A little tricky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how about like navigating Portland, Oregon, uh, in the body that you're in? Like, have do you did you experience differences from a place like Maryland to here? Uh, it's it's been an interesting one actually at my school. Uh, I've I definitely definitely notice times when I will get a look from a kid looking at me and going like, what are you doing here? Hmm. Uh, or a look from a kid that just has, it's, it's, it's just like microaggressions all over the place sometimes. Um, and then the, you know, the question of like, you know, how do you, how do I respond to those? What do I think about those? You know, um, at the same time, I kind of have to, you know, sort of, you know, kind of recognize that, being I'm in a different place that that being here I once I'm done my grad school in in August and have a doctorate I will be for many people the only for many people the only person of color with a doctorate that they ever meet or mm -hmm. or certainly for many people the only black male with a doctorate that they ever meet um and so yeah in terms of navigating like with the body that I'm in uh you know, I'm six feet tall. Um, I keep my hair pretty short. Uh, I don't have like, uh, I don't know. I, I, my, my style is, is generally for a lot of people, I think probably going to be in, on the non-threatening side of like my personal style, my, uh, my clothing or like, you know, sort of accessory style, that kind of stuff. I think for a lot of people is, is going to be pretty non-threatening by which I mean, white enough to be honest i mean that's that's mm -hmm. but it and so um so yeah there are definitely times when like i uh i i think about like what i'm wearing or what i like what i'm how i'm carrying myself outside of the house and kind of thinking like there there are a lot of times here where i am very aware that i might be the first black person to be in a place not necessarily in Portland, necessarily, but definitely outside of Portland. There are lots of times when I'm very aware that I might be the first black person, certainly in there today, <laughs> um, if not for like quite a while, if not ever, depending on how you know far away from, from Portland I'm going. Um, and I think there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely male privilege pieces of the way that I'm able to navigate that that make it different. Um, there's also, uh, I know this is an audio podcast, uh, and even if with the pictures, you, it's not going to be the best picture. Generally, I have a pretty nice smile, and I talk in a way that is comfortable for a lot of people, by which, again, I mean, like, white enough. Mm -hmm. And so if I have a chance to flash that smile and say even five words out of my mouth a lot of people get a lot more comfortable mm. um and i know that that's a thing so yeah and can you say like when you say like i know that that's a thing what else like i i feel like what else comes up for you around that um i think 
there is an element of like making other people comfortable a little bit, but I wouldn't say that that's something that's on my mind a lot. Um, it's not something that I think about like, oh, I'm walking in this room and I know I'm going to be, I know a lot of people are going to be like on edge because I'm here or on edge because of a very visible person just walked in the room. So let me settle everybody down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that, that's not really what I think about really, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Can you say that question again? I think I kind of oh, sort of felt like. Yeah, I think you're yeah. answering it. Like, I'm just curious, like what else kind of gets wrapped up in that? Because you have an awareness of it. So. Um, well, I would say I would say I've been lucky for the most part, for the most part, um, that the things that I've chosen to do um, with my career or with um, my studies or, or other things like that have been things where I have not had an issue being a, a biracial person in those things or actually that it's actually an asset that they're like. There's definitely still problems of like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why, why are you so excited to have a black man in this room right now? Like, is it because, mm -hmm. <laughs> is this just because it's like a quota thing, or you're like you're trying? We're trying to change it. We're not going to literally change anything about what we do. We're just going to make sure you're here. <laughs> like, check, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely possible. Um, but yeah, I think I think I think luckily for me, there there's. The, the vast, vast, vast majority of things that I've ever wanted to do are things where either male privilege, fine, or my uh, my abilities with with language or with the way that I move myself around the world, fine, or or that piece of like questionable welcoming with the mm -hmm. are you just checking a box? But either way, whatever, you're like, welcome, welcome, welcome. Mm -hmm. um, I, just, I was on a kayak once and this guy was like, hey, I never see other black people on kayaks. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, cool. I mean, wait, this was yeah. just like some random guy that was like near you or something. It's like kayaking. Yeah, this was, actually, this, this was actually back in Maryland. Yeah. This oh, is gosh. back in Maryland. Uh. And like, and uh, yeah, this, this, this white guy was, and his, his, I don't know, a person he was going paddling with. I don't know if they, what their relationship was, but, but yeah, they they we started talking and it was you know they were nice people and everything, but they were like, we never we never see other black people on kayaks, and I was like, well, I don't, mm, uh, mm. yeah, how do you respond to that? <laughs> cool. I mean, yeah. yeah, I think I, I I but that's when I think about the other activities that I do, especially at that time, I was like rock climbing a little bit. I wasn't never really got super super into it, but uh, but rock climbing or cycling or kayaking like. Like, yeah, these are activities where, like, there's not a huge amount of diversity compared to, like, you know, the vast majority of people who do them, um, yeah. you know, but, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in, in Oregon, so did Kayla, and so, like, <laughs> there's a lot of outdoor sports here, but you're right, yeah. like, I don't think I ever saw a black person <laughs> 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 rock climbing until I moved to, like, Portland, you know? Yeah. Right. So, yeah, but like some really some of that some of that's changing lately. Partly, well, some of it's the way it was because the only way that it was like cool to be a, a road cyclist was to like pretend you were in the Tour de France all the time, and it's like, <laughs> w like none of us are going to the Tour de France tomorrow. Like no, we can just happening. chill out. Um, and and some of that's changed. That and when we talk about like systems or infrastructure, like some of the things that are supporting that are 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 actually like physically the bikes themselves first of all bikes especially road bikes can be like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars so they can mm -hmm. be super super price exclusive um but also in terms of like changing it so that more bodies and more people can ride their bikes in more places the actual design of the machine itself like fitting wider tires so you can ride on roads that are like bumpier more comfortably like that's a piece that like bike companies are really recognizing like oh like we're leaving a lot of money on the table not mm -hmm. making the things that we make like useful for people who weigh more than 185 pounds mm -hmm. like or or are we're not making them useful for people who don't live in pristine like asphalt environments like we should maybe think about that and mm -hmm. also bikes can be more fun and so and then that's trickling down to things that are more affordable as well. But also it's at the super high end, like the bikes that are, are racing in Paris Nice, like can fit 
tires that are comfortable for those places and for those bodies. Um, so you could you could spend twelve thousand dollars on that bike and fit fit those comfortable tires for wherever you live and wherever you want to go, uh, whatever body you have. Because riding those skinny tires, you got to pump them up so much, it's freaking really uncomfortable. So so there's some infrastructure changes that are happening, um, but then there's also some cultural changes that are happening. Uh, this this bike team in in Los Angeles, Legion Los Angeles. Uh, oh my God, it's so, so exciting to watch them. Uh, Justin Williams and his brother, Corey, and his, their brother, CJ. Like, Justin Williams was a national champion, uh, like, criterium racer. So, like, road racing is like the Tour de France and stuff where you go from one place to another. Criterium racing is like when you're on a loop, uh, usually in an urban environment. So, you're doing laps. Um, it's really high-intensity racing. It's really, really exciting um and justin williams is like he's he's so exciting like he he like they go to bike races and they've got like their like chains out they're like flat caps on like they got their jordans on they're like we're just gonna be who we are oh and also i'm going to win every time (laughs) that's that's what i'm gonna do yeah so you guys can decide what you want to do but that's what i'm gonna do uh and they are they're so exciting it's really really cool to see that is cool do you see that happening at all in portland is that is there any moves for that there is some yeah there's a a friend of mine from uh cyclocross racing here so cyclocross racing for anybody who's not in portland or belgium (laughs) uh is like racing road bikes off-road kind of Mm. um it's really really fun racing you also have to like get off and run with the bike every once in a while so it's like really interesting really cool stuff um, but, uh, yeah, a friend of mine, uh, and a couple other people, they started a group called bike POC, uh, B I K E P O C, uh, Northwest. Um, and they're doing really cool stuff. So they, you know, they'll, they'll arrange just like kind of whoever wants to show up rides, they'll, um, you know, build, building that community of, of, yeah, people of color on bikes. And, and it's been really, really fun to see. I'm, I'm sad that I haven't been able to be that as much a part of it because of my, uh, my grad school stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he wanted to start that in like 2019 and it's, it's really, it's really taken off in a really cool way. It's, it's really neat to see like, pers- you know, consistent posts on Instagram, like diversify outdoors and like all kinds of cool stuff. It's, it's been really cool to see that community grow. Yeah. That's, that's super awesome. exciting. Cool. Yeah. I love that. Can we, I'm curious about, um, like your relationship, if we can kind of go back to like maybe roots of education and family stuff. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, uh, yeah, your upbringing around education and, and maybe like if, and maybe if not like your identity played into your experience in, um, going into education, uh, yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of your roots and background there. Sure. Uh, yeah, my, my family is all teachers. So my mom is a teacher. My dad, well, my mom and dad are both retired now, but my, my mom and dad were both teachers. Uh, my older sister is a teacher. My younger sister is a teacher. Uh, my mom's mom was a teacher. My mom's sister was a teacher. Like everybody is all teachers and stuff. So um, my, yeah, my mom's sister her husband so my my aunt and uncle where they were both teachers in ohio and stuff so like everybody's all teachers uh and i never thought about doing anything else to be honest uh because it's just like what everybody does <laughs> so um so yeah so being a teacher like i remember geez my senior year of high school when you know it's my last my last choir concert uh and you know i was uh oh god i was in the barber shop quartet yeah 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 oh man wow, that's an exclusive crew uh-huh. i was very fancy uh yeah i remember, <laughs> I remember being on being on stage and, and being on stage like before that last song as a senior and being like you know like to a whole auditorium of people like I'm so thankful to to my teacher, you know, teachers, all of my teachers who in theater and choir and stuff who've supported, you know, supported these programs and supported me. Uh, and I'm so excited that I'm you know, going to University of Maryland to study education and I'm going to come back here and be a teacher, like declared it to a crowd. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so for me, being a being a teacher was always like a very completely natural thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is cool. I kind of. I kind of want to go back to what you said a little bit before of like that, the anecdote of where like a kid at school, like looked at you and was like, like, why are, like, 
who are you? Like maybe a little confused. And I think like maybe as like a principal, you maybe see that with, with parents. Um, I don't know if it's a tricky question, but like, have you experienced any of like, not necessarily questioning, but like, who are you? Like, what, what you do in here? You know, especially like maybe in Portland where you see, where you said like there are situations where maybe you're the first black person they're seeing that day, you know, what is that? What is that like? Yeah, I, th I think that piece hasn't come up as much as maybe it would have um, because of the pandemic and because we don't yeah. have as many visitors to our buildings as normal. Um, but definitely there's a part of it. Actually, I, I didn't think about it. Well, I have thought about it. Didn't remember how it linked to this conversation until now, though. But um, but yeah, that, that piece about Legion of Los Angeles where like we're going to show up to the race wearing our, our normal stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. The, the things that are comfortable for us and we don't care if it's comfortable for you. Um, mm -hmm. And there are definitely times where, you know, I, I love the other, the other principles that I work with are, are really, really cool. Um, they're really, really good people. Um, but we were in like a little sort of affinity time conversation and, and somebody said something about like wearing jeans two days a week. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? I don't wear dress pants literally ever <laughs> like I wear I, I wear the stuff I'm gonna wear and that's comfortable for me so like right now like I'm wearing like a pair of like uh like waterproof vans that have like a white outsole and like kind of a chipmunk tan like body with like red <laughs> laces and stuff like in a hoodie today like that's what I'm gonna wear to work because that's what's comfortable for me also, I might get dirty at work. We got like lots of shops and stuff. So I might get, mm -hmm. I also might get dirty just hanging out with the kids. Yeah. But, but also, yeah, definitely a big part of it is like, you know, when I got this job, my mom was like, oh, do you want to, you want a gift card to Nordstrom or whatever? You can get some. And I was like, no, nah, I literally told her, I was like, no, I'm good. I'm not a white guy from the suburbs. Like, <laughs> I don't. I don't need to wear that. I'm going to wear what I'm comfortable wearing and I'm still the principal, whatever I'm wearing. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah. um, so it, it has, it, it hasn't come up in like a confrontational way where I've had mm -hmm. to say that to somebody, but I have in a like joking way. Yeah. I have in a joking way said that to a kid before when I had to like sub for a teacher who was out and I was like, yeah, what's up? I'm the principal. And they were like, uh, really? And I was like, yep, I'm definitely the principal, even when I'm wearing this. And they were like, cool. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like I feel like folks should know that Curtis and I are friends. We've known each other for a while now, I think about five years um, through education. And I feel like it's important also, Curtis, for you to share that you're you're not a principal of like um, like a, a traditional high school, like you're a principal of a career technical education high school. And I would love to hear you talk about the importance of that form of education for you. And also like anything that you might want to say about the role of equity in what you see uh, in your experience through CTE. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Career, career technical education is a very special thing. Um, one of the, but probably the, the best thing, the cool, one of the coolest things I've ever seen kids do, um, definitely the coolest thing that I've, I've seen this year in our, in our metal shop. Uh, I walk out, I walk out back under this sort of covered, but outdoor space. And these three kids are sit, are like kind of standing around this giant saw. Like it's this gigantic piece of equipment that is used to cut down longer, longer, stock of metal into the pieces that you're going to bring into the shop and use. Um, but what they're trying to do, they've mounted the, the saw on this bearing that's bolted into the concrete so that they can turn the saw instead of having to turn the long material. Because if, if the material is 20 feet long, you're going to have to clear a 20 foot radius to, to clear it if you got to turn the, the metal. So it's much better to just turn the saw. And then the metal stays straight and you only have to clear like, you know, a 18 inch wide straight line for the metal to stay straight all the time. Um, and these kids are standing around this saw that's mounted on this bearing. And I'm like, what you guys doing? And they're like, well, we got to figure out how to mark the concrete so that we can bolt the saw down when we turn it to 22 and a half degrees or 45 degrees. But like, we don't know what to do because the saw is sitting on the middle of the circle. So like, 
how do we do it? Like, and it's just this really cool geometry problem that these kids are literally standing around a geometry problem going like, how do you figure out the, the sweep along the arc of us, you know, on a circle, if you don't have access to the midpoint of the circle mm-hmm. and is really, like really, really cool. Um, and this one kid, the one of the three kids wanted to eyeball it. And I was like, don't listen to him. He, don't know, <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, um, but yeah, it was just an awesome experience of like seeing these kids like stand around a math problem. Um, and that kind of stuff is so exciting because they can figure it out in that environment, maybe in a way that they don't when they sit in a regular desk with everybody else. Um, you know, as a culinary teacher, so many times, you know, kids will say things about how they, they, oh, I have this math test coming up. I hate math. I suck at math. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Um, you need one and two thirds cups of flour. How many one third scoops do you need to get it? And then they are like five. And I'm like, okay, cool. So you definitely don't suck at math as much as you thought you did because you just did it. Um, and that kind of place where kids can be successful and feel confident um, is really important. Um, definitely also, though, as a culinary teacher, the the room and, like, the, sp- the space to be so culturally affirming is, like, is so open for, for all of our content, but especially for me as a culinary teacher, like, you know, so, but it, it's definitely on the adult to take a little risk. Like, I remember making tortillas with my class and being like, I have spent 0% of my life making tortillas. Um, this Help. is maybe going to be a little embarrassing for me. But like, if you're out there and you have that like secret grandma knowledge of how this is supposed to look like, tell me, like I'm in, I don't, I, I don't need to be the holder of knowledge here, you know? So like welcoming that kind of like secret, you know, secret uncle knowledge about how the chicken is supposed to be smoked. You know, like mm-hmm. if you got it, like, let's do it. Like, let's bring all that in to the room. It's really mm-hmm. cool stuff mm-hmm. um, that is harder to do in other content in my experience. So, yeah, it sounds like it's more open to like learning from your students as much as you're teaching them as well. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's it's definitely because I, I feel like it's because there's just so many ways to so there's so many ways to put a roof on a building like we can t- if we have a construction program, most buildings around the world have a roof. Like, let's talk about all these different ways of like how that happens and like why it is in those you know different locations. What are what are the materials? What are the environmental factors? What are the cultural factors that like make this particular thing really meaningful to the people who care about it? You know, and let's let's talk about that. Let's welcome all of that in. Like there's so many ways that that works. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know in Oregon, we're thinking so much about the future of education, especially for students who have historically been underserved. And it's been inspiring to see recently, actually, how CTE is starting to like, I don't know, get some more attention for how it can really offer a lot of successful pathways for kids. Um, Yeah, how do you like, how do you see the future of education? Like, if you if you were to just like speak from your vision, um, yeah, what would you what would you want it to look like for all kids? I can tell you one of the. I, I think the biggest dreamland. thing, <laughs> yeah, the dream the big the the dreamlandiest dreamlandy thing is <laughs> no more no more state tests. Uh, I think I think the biggest thing that I would love to change. And I think would open up so many other possibilities. So like, it's hard for me to necessarily say what it would ideally look like, but I can say one of the things that keeps it from looking like anything else is like the really strong adherence to like traditional accountability standards, like a regular business has, because it is not a business like, you know, um, so yeah, right. Like it was created during the industrial revolution to produce little like products that come out. (laughs) I mean, exactly. Right. And so, so yeah. So like all these, like, like why, why I used to teach English. Like why didn't I, as an English teacher, like see my content as being so like, uh, flexible as I did with being a culinary teacher. Like, and I was in I was in districts that had 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 good, like I was saying before, like kind of a centralized standard or like a centralized direction of like these. This is the this is the menu of, you know, 10 books or this is the menu of 10 things, whatever. 
you you teach whatever you want or you teach it however you want to teach it but you know this is the state test this is the menu of things that are going to come up uh or this is the menu of of material whatever it just but at the same time though just at the end of the day it's always about that test you know it's always about like that accountability measure and that everybody has to learn the same thing at the same time to meet it you know um where with yeah with cte where so many things are project-based or more flexible more more student-centered um and i don't i it's been almost 10 years since I've taught English, you know, so I don't, it's, it's a long time for me to, to sort of think back on how would I make English more project-based, more student-centered? Um, you know, that's a, that's a tough question, but I, I would love to see it. Yeah, I would love to see it look more like CTE, to be honest. Like, we have the freedom to be flexible with our, our content and responsive with our content because we don't have, one of the reasons, because we don't have those state tests that we're, we're stuck with. Um, you know, we don't have to have everybody learn the same thing at the same time as the standard of what good teaching looks like. So, oh, thank you. Um, I kind of want to. So we had a previous conversation and I want to change gears a little bit. And you are also other than an educator and a principal and artist. Um, and I was wondering if you could kind of talk to us about your art and kind of how your personal identity kind of shows up in your art. Sure. Yeah. My, uh, my, my art is very geometric. So, so for the, for the, I guess for the people who can't see anything right now, uh, definitely, I would say my biggest, my big influences imagine kind of a smush together of like Legos and Pee Wee's Playhouse and like, this is a little bit esoteric, but like Memphis design is like a, if you Google if you Google or if you just hashtag Memphis Design on Instagram, you'll be like, oh, it's the 1980s instantly. Like it's yeah, it's it's all that kind of like big pops of color, um, a lot of that kind of black and white static background, a lot of like um, yeah. So so that's that's sort of a general estimation of like kind of what I'm kind of trying to go for like style wise for myself. Um, but um, I like puzzles a lot. Um, so for me, definitely the geometric aspects of my paint or of my of my work that I do, there's a lot of a lot of planning, a lot of planning, planning, planning with like the layers and the shapes and the way things are going to come together. Um, as much as I like to be like kind of free spirit ish in lots of other things, uh, my my art is not improvised at all. Uh, like so there's a lot of like time rendering on the computer which is the time when like ideas marinate for me mm. and that kind of like thinking time is something that I really appreciate. Like that's a big thing that I get out of it is the time to really like sit still with an idea for a while. Um, and so then in the end, it's not, it's not improvised at all when I do it because I've spent so much time like in my mind already like designing it or on the computer already designing it. But, um, but yeah, the, the bikes that I paint, um, have been really, really fun to do, um, challenging in that puzzle way because weird tubes coming together presents a weird challenge for how do you get, you know, shapes to lay flat on, how do you get a triangle to lay flat on two tubes coming together at like 72 degrees? Like what, uh, how does this work? Mm -hmm. So there's a fun challenge and, and puzzle part of it that I like. Um, but there is also like kind of with that whole that discussion of bike poc, uh, that group and everything of being very visible and being um, the only one. <laughs> and so so, you know, so for me, having a bike that is uh, kind of a match to that isn't necessarily about having like the most exclusive parts, but it's about like uh, that. Yeah, I it's it's extraordinarily customized in a way that like. I mean, I definitely don't want to toot my own horn and say nobody else could do because there's lots of amazing painters. Um, but yeah, that 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 my bike is also going to be like super visible and like in some ways kind of like I don't I don't use it as like a as like a deflection or like a shield. But like in some ways, yeah, I think some people might where it's like, yeah, stop looking at me and look at how freaking awesome my bike is, because that's what you're doing with all of your other friends. It's like looking at how cool their bike is. So uh -huh. like let's like look at how cool my bike is and my bike is cooler than yours so yeah. <laughs> yeah that really I mean that's such a different experience right it's like when when you walk around in a 
in a in a brown or black body <laughs> in Portland like it's not just like you get looked at for like your clothes it's like it's like oh it's also a BIPOC person mm-hmm. in like it's like the social construct is like part of how you're seen all the time um so I think that's so fascinating that you like the way that you're putting that about like this kind of one-of-a-kind bike that also is just like a it's just a bike and I'm out here doing the bike thing like <laughs> you know um I don't need to be like seen as only the the body that I'm in Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there, there's also such a like a like a vogue for you know like matte black like stealthy finish of like I feel like it's like it's just a trickle down from like all this other junk of like you know Mercedes puts out this like you know two hundred thousand dollar matte black you know convertible that's like well I've never seen a matte black car before is like and then all these freaking dudes who want to ride you know like three thousand five thousand eight thousand dollar ten thousand dollar bikes want like a matte black super stealth finish with like gloss black logos. It's going to be so cool. And it's like, what? Like, it's so boring. boring. Like this, this like, yeah, this like sameness is like, to me, really dull. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't, I don't know what I, I honestly can't even really figure out like, what is the goal here? Like this whole matte black, like super stealthy, invisible thing. Like it doesn't, doesn't mean anything to me like bikes are joyous and fun and and it's like it should be a good time so like why are we trying to like be all stealthy and invisible like mm. let's have a good time like do a wheelie <laughs> like do a wheelie <laughs> do, do something cool what's your, totally. what's your take on like sameness like what's your take on conformity uh it does yeah um, surprise surprise yeah not interesting to me really uh <laughs> i mean but but at the same time i think where it comes out in my art a little bit is that i do like pop art i do actually i i uh the first thing that i put on my instagram like if, if anybody's out there and is crazy enough to scroll all the way down to the bottom um because right now my instagram's all about like color and like bikes and and these um these uh insulated uh tumblers and stuff kind of like uh, like um like coffee like coffee stuff you know so things that i'm painting um but if you scroll all the way down to the bottom i actually started it's called save the postal service because i originally was making envelopes um because i love mail i love getting mail everybody likes getting a letter in the mail um and so originally i was taking books from like withdrawn library books or books that i found at goodwill and then like actually taking them apart page by page and taking each page and making it into an envelope. Um, And so if you scroll all the way down my Instagram, it's a lot of posts that nobody liked about (laughs) like pictures of like literally pictures of mailboxes and stuff that I thought were cool and I liked it. Um, But, uh, but yeah, that, that sameness, like to me, like that's the thing that makes it special is that like, if I was going to write either of you a letter, I have at this point, literally thousands of envelopes that like (laughs) I can write you like it a good letter a good letter starts at the stamp at least a good stamp is important (laughs) but like but starting like with literally like the page like I could probably if I went up there find something from Eugene or or at least something with a duck on it or something with something that would be a little reference that like Jackie you would get you know like and that that to me is special that like that it is that one thing and that like somebody picked it specially for you, you know, like that, that Mm -hmm. sameness generally is pretty boring, but pop art wise, it's actually really interesting. Like doing something for, I think probably 5,000 ish envelopes up there. Like it's a lot. Uh, And so doing the same thing 5,000 times gets pretty weird, gets pretty interesting. (laughs) Like, so like artistically that pop art piece of like, make it, make it, make it, make it, make it, make it, like pop it out, pop it out, pop it out is actually kind of interesting because of that time, like spent folding the same fold 5,000 times. <laughs> like it's kind of interesting, but only in my artistic piece and like the world in general, nah, not, not interesting. <laughs> I'm going to be scrolling down to the bottom. I can't <laughs> wait to see this. That sounds so cool. I used to send letters to friends when I was in college um, just because, it just sounded, it was just more fun. Like you said, more fun to get a letter than get a text or something. You're like, there's just more thought and purpose to it. <laughs> yeah, it's a special well, I've, to get something. I've been, I've been trying, I've been meaning to like 
kind of like give them away or, or set up and like sell them or whatever. Kind of like, you know, just like one of the people that like stands outside or hangs outside pals with like their cool art thing, whatever they their art thing happens to be. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, there's the slow motion. There's they're an analog text message. Yeah, it's nice. It's fun. <laughs> and all your free time as a principal. Getting your, getting your doctorate. <laughs> I can totally see you doing it, though. Like just how I spent my Sunday afternoon <laughs> selling envelopes yeah. outside of Bell's. <laughs> for like, for like $2 a piece, $3 a piece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? I didn't want to like, I, I the, offend you. They're very fancy envelopes, let me they tell you. They're very fancy. They're very fancy. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What also, I mean, going back what Jackie just said, what is it like getting your doctorate right now? I mean, I've only gotten my bachelor's degree and I don't even know what that, what is that looking like for you and being a principal? Well, getting the doctorate has some, has made some things really, really interesting. It's definitely illuminated some things in ways that I'm like, oh, dang, I really, really need that. Uh, So these classes, this class that I took in uh, organizational theory oh my god it was so like revolutionary for me like yeah uh dr sue feldman if you ever hear this we all still love you very 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 much Uh, like that class was so good and like like just these ideas of like uh like well actually these ideas of sameness um in organizational theory isomorphism the tendency of organizations to all look the same and like why is it that like you go into just about every business and they all still have the same departments as every other business. Doesn't matter if they're making shoes or watches or computers, like whatever, like they're like, they all have the same sort of general groups of people. And like one of the pieces of it, like for me, when I trace that back, like for me, a lot of it comes down to either accounting or insurance where like, so, okay, well, Jackie, you've got this great successful business and, you know, we want to we want to give you a loan, but you come in and you got these weird like homemade books from your mom and pop business like what the hell is this? We can't give you a loan. Like you don't even know how much your inventory is. So you go back to your business and then you go, "Oh, we got to we got to keep an inventory." Uh mm-hmm. never done that before. And then you go, "Well, now we got to have some way of organizing our inventory or like in the computer or on a, on a on a system somewhere so we can go to the bank to get the money to make more things to make more money." <laughs> and like it that sort of just always circulates back around from that origin point of like looking legitimate. Like mm-hmm. you have to legitimize yourself somehow. And a lot of times that starts with just the basics of like, "Okay, well like what are your assets?" And then from there you like kind of legitimize yourself from there out to be like, well, the way I do that is I make sure I have a stock manager and I make sure I have people on the sales floor, making sure our stuff's not getting stolen. And I make sure I have this and that and the other thing. And then ultimately like you have the same basic building blocks as every other business. Like, Mm -hmm. but it all, for me, I feel like it all comes back to how do you legitimize yourself so you can get the money to even do the thing in the first place. So like looking legitimate, like, yeah, you, ha- you have to look a certain way and, and keep your books a certain way and, and run your hiring a certain way or whatever so that you can like, um, yeah, look look legitimate. So like, so that piece of like, why is everybody doing everything the same? And then how do you interrupt that? Like, mm-hmm. um, because it it doesn't take that much to like look around to another country or another culture and be like, Hey, hang on a second. This this thing that is completely normal here is actually completely abnormal everywhere else except here. Like we're the ones doing it weird. But when you like silo down and you only can see what you can see from your silo, like you know, then it's hard to it's hard to even have a language for like what else might be out there. So like I feel like that class in organizational theory was a really really important one. Um, but uh, definitely there are places where like it's made me less tolerant of like theory and action not matching up uh that i've gotten way less tolerant of that and really starting to say okay as soon as i see that i kind of wonder like why is that not happening and usually it's not happening on purpose for some reason the the real thing that we want to do is too hard or the real thing that we want to do doesn't seem possible you know um the real thing that we want to do um we don't feel like changing the resources around actually make it happen 
you know, like there's, or, or we feel like that's not possible, um, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's the piece, I think a big piece that I've walked away from doing the doctorate with has been like really a willingness to engage in that imagination space of like, this seems impossible, but I'm going to go ahead and like play this out anyway. Like, even if I think it would take way more resources than I have, or seems like it would take forever or wouldn't work. I'm still going to like at least sketch it out, like see what happens. And like a lot of times it's a lot less impossible than it looked, you know? Yeah. So I feel like that's a, that's an important one for me. No, I think that's so, I feel like you're really pointing to this kind of like pattern that we see across the way that people engage in organizations, whether they're starting something or whether there's something that already exists and they want to try to change something. It's like people start with this set of values that they think are really important to them. And then someone kind of communicates to them that the way that they see the thing happening actually isn't enough. Like there's no Mm -hmm. space for that or like it doesn't fit into the containers that we like have predetermined and set up for everyone. And then before you know it, like you're kind of getting lost in the like sameness conformity shuffle where you like actually forget your original vision, your imagination falls to the wayside. And so I really appreciate what you're saying about like, what if we returned back to imaginative spaces? And what do you think is like keeping us from that? Like, what do you think is keeping us from leaning into a place of imagination to be able to come up with new solutions, new ways of being, new innovations that actually are more aligned with what we originally intended and more aligned with our values. Yeah, like uh, one word, urgency. (laughs) Like uh, it really, it really, really like blew my mind in a major way. And like in a way that like I'm, I'm disappointed in myself that like I didn't have an idea of it before the person said it. But like, I'm so thankful that this person said it where like they were, we were in a class and this person's like, yeah, like urgency is a huge supporter of white supremacy. Like it's one of the things that makes it keep going. And I was just like, Whoa, tell me a lot more. Let me think about that a lot more. Like, and that, that I think is the big one is that like one, one of the questions that I kept on trying to bring to the table in conversations like as a as a principal when I'm in conversation with like district people or other people is this question because it was a question we had no choice but to ask during distance learning was some of the things that we would normally do are not available right now so we just can't do them and that's just the way it is for now eventually we might need some of those things back but some of them actually we might just cut those and actually let them go and not do them anymore Um, and as we started to come back to school, I kept trying to keep that question alive a little bit to say, how can we do fewer things at a, at such an exceptional standard that people aren't even going to notice the things that we're not doing? Um, how can we, how can we do this, these things that we do so well? And even if we need to add one or two, but we can't add back 10 because we're 10 that we stopped doing because of the pandemic, we can't add back all 10 and just start pretending like everything's fine. So, so how can we maybe, you know, of those 10 things, how can we either cut a few of them and just really just let them go? How can we replace a couple of those things with better systems that are, that are, that are more effective or more supportive for what we actually want to do? Um, and that's a really hard question for, for people. Um, that's a really hard one. Um, and, and even for my staff members who had a really hard time, some of them during the pandemic and feeling really unsuccessful in this very new space for, for a while, um, letting them know repeatedly, it is okay that you are not doing all of the things you would normally do. I, in fact, I expect you to not do it. You can't, like you can't, you can't bring kids into the welding shop right now. It's okay that you're not doing that. Let's think of what else we could fill that space with. Um, is, yeah, it's a real challenge when there's habit. Um, there's also a real challenge when people are acculturated to that urgency to like, to constantly do. Um, and that I think is, is, yeah, one of the other things I'd really like to see change in education, um, aside from the accountability piece, the urgency piece that's kind of tied to accountability. Um, but yeah, that piece of how do we get back to this imagining space of like, yeah, what what could we do to maybe do fewer things exceptionally well, um, and have and have that difficult conversation when somebody says, "Oh, but I really really liked item number six. Like you got rid of item six, and it's like, yeah, but we brought on a couple other things that also, you know, meet that need. You know, if mm-hmm. it's a, if it's a need or whatever, if it's an interest, um, or 
you know what, we, we decided to put our resources in a place that was going to serve, you know, serve, serve other things. And that that's okay. That sometimes that's going to happen. I don't know. That's a conversation that seems, it's, it's very theoretical for me. I'm not a superintendent. So, <laughs> so I don't have to have that conversation in public with the public in front of a board meeting. So easy for me to say, I will definitely put that asterisk on there, but. Do you think, do you think your biracial identity in any way, like, helps you see the these possibilities in different ways? Hmm. Is there, like, any way in which your, like, racial identity, you feel like, or the way that you grew up identity-wise or in your culture, like, helps you kind of, because I feel like you talk about these things like they're kind of effortless. And I feel hmm. like most hmm. people would listen and be like, that's not effortless. And so I'm curious if there's anything about like the way that you, yeah, your racial identity or the culture that you grew up in that helps you kind of like see things this way. Um, that's an interesting one. I mean, I think, I think there's parts of, there's parts of my creative sort of nature, I think that like, I like seeing what can happen when you like disassemble things and put them back together. But that's like not necessarily cultural, but I feel like, I definitely feel like part of it though, that is cultural is, is a piece of like the access that, that my background has been able to give me in terms of that, that education history of everybody being in education and that being a place where I'm so comfortable. Um, like there was a, a situation during my master's degree where I was at the place where I was getting my master's and I was getting a transcript in the registrar's office. And I, I saw this microfilm machine and I was like, Hey, what's in this, what's up with this microfilm machine? Like I never even see those in the library anymore. And they're like, Oh yeah. Like after a certain date, like all the records are just on microfilm. And I was like, well, my grandma went here. So like, can I see her transcript? And they like, were like, okay, sure. Uh, and so like, I think I think a part of it definitely in terms of like why this sort of like, yeah, just change this big thing. Like, who cares? Like is is I think a, a cultural piece of it, I think, is that long term access to places where where power can come from. If if one of the places where power can come from is education and credential, particularly like having that having that credential being a thing that does give a certain amount of power potentially. Um, and so like so when I'm I'm in that college and like I'm getting my master's degree and like statistically speaking, I had no idea at the time. Statistically speaking, only I think like something crazy, like maybe 13% of the entire country has a master's degree. So like in certain circles, it's incredibly common. Like most of the people that I know have a master's degree because most of the people I know are from education and at a certain point you have to get one. Um, so, but yeah, for the rest of the country, that's incredibly rare. Um, and so having access on a generational basis to those places where like that kind of power and that kind of like access uh, mm. comes from, I think is a part of why some of these changes seem so easy for me. Like, because yeah, my, my grandma's name is right there in the office. It's easy. Mm -hmm. I can see her whole transcript, you know? Yeah. Um, and so yeah. then getting my doctorate for me is like, it's challenging, but like, it's not, it's not, un, it's not complete. I'm not, I'm not treading too far beyond where everybody else whose footsteps I was like walking in went mm -hmm. relatively mm -hmm. speaking for compared to a lot of people, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because uh, you you grew up in an education background with your family and like going far back, do you guys have, do you talk about these changes that are occurring in education? Like, do they, are they like, well, back in my day or like, are you celebrating like, like what's going on and changing and are, are you having those kind of, it would be interesting since it's in your, in your family history of educators to see a change and to, to talk about it. Yeah. My, uh, my mom is not a philosopher. She is, she is a very practical person. So mm -hmm. she, she, she does not have a lot of interest in like these kind of philosophical conversations, really. Um, we just had a conversation the other day that of course I'm blanking on right now, but a situation where like, oh yeah, when we're talking about masking and unmasking that, uh, so 
sorry to sort of sort of dating the podcast, although I guess we're talking about the pandemic a little bit, so it's going to be dated. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> but so in Oregon, uh, the mask mandates just got uh, taken away on March 12th, which is a Saturday. So we're recording on Monday, the 14th. And so today is the first day of school where mm-hmm. kids didn't have to wear masks. Staff members don't have to wear masks. Um, and last week we had a, a conversation, sort of a district level conversation with administrators. And my contribution to that conversation about like, you know, what's it going to be like? How are the kids going to react? All this stuff. And my contribution to that conversation was that like, yeah, I've been having conversations with my teachers and kind of letting them know that like if navigating the emotions on your side as an adult or helping the kids have conversations about this is tricky. Part of the reason that it's tricky is that this whole thing, that education that we all went through, that you were trained in, means that everyone learns the same thing at the same time. And everybody understands the same thing at the same time. And this whole unmasking thing or mask mandates going away is completely counter to that. It categorically requires us to accept and welcome people who have different understandings of this thing at the same time. And so so if you are a staff member and you're having a hard time with this, you are not a failure. You are totally good. We are in a, a place where we're doing a thing that's completely counter to all of our training. And I explained that to my mom and she was just like, I don't get it. <laughs> like, she was just like, she just did not, she did not care at all. Like, she was just like, I, I'm very, and, she, and she's, yeah, yeah, she's just funny. She's not, she doesn't really care to talk about the philosophy of things or like mm-hmm. systems or, or that kind of, all that, all that stuff. She just, you know, not interesting, not, mm-hmm. not for her. She doesn't care. Um um, yeah, and my, my dad uh, a little bit more. Um, we've had some really, really good conversations about my doctoral work and sometimes when I'm running into barriers there um, or also, you know, like work uh, as, an, as, a, as a building principal too um, because he was an administrator. And so that's been a really special thing to be able to, to, be able to talk to him about that um, because like I said, he's not, he's not a uh, just calling for fun kind of person. So if I have something going on where I need to call up and, and get some perspective on something, um, that totally falls into like, yes, he knows he knows where he is in that conversation. Um, and that feels good. You know, it feels special to be able to connect with him in that way. Thank you for listening to Living Two or More. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Living Two or More. If you have any comments or questions, we would love to hear from you. Reach out to us at livingtourmorepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.